Section 29 of Essays, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays, Book 1, by Michel de Montaigne. Translated by Charles Cotton. Chapter 28. Nine and Twenty Sonnets of Etienne de la Boétie. To Madame de Ramont. Comtesse de Guisin. They scarce contain anything but amorous complaints expressed in a very rough style, discovering the follies and outrages of a restless passion, overgorged, as it were, with jealousies, fears, and suspicions. Costa. These contained in the edition of 1588 nine and twenty sonnets of La Boétie, accompanied by a dedicatory epistle to Madame de Gramont. The former, which are referred to at the end of chapter 27, do not really belong to the book, and are of very slight interest at this time. The epistle is transferred to the correspondence. The sonnets with the letter were presumably sent sometime after letters five and following. Montaigne seems to have had several copies written out to forward to friends or acquaintances. Chapter 29 of Moderation As if we had an infectious touch, we, by our manner of handling, corrupt things that, in themselves, are laudable and good. We may grasp virtue so that it becomes vicious, if we embrace it too stringently and with too violent a desire. Those who say, there is never any excess in virtue, for as much as it is not virtue when it once becomes excess, only play upon words. Insani sapiens nomen ferat, aequus iniqui, ultra quam satis est, virtutem si petat ipsam. Let the wise man bear the name of a madman, the just one of an unjust, if he seek wisdom more than is sufficient. Horace Epistles one six fifteen. The wise man is no longer wise, the just man no longer just, if he seek to carry his love for wisdom or virtue beyond that which is necessary. This is a subtle consideration of philosophy. A man may both be too much in love with virtue and be excessive in a just action. Holy writ agrees with this. Be not wiser than you should, but be soberly wise. St. Paul, Epistle to the Romans, 12.3 I have known a great man prejudice the opinion men had of his devotion, by pretending to be devout beyond all examples of others of his condition. Footnote It is likely that Montaigne meant Henry III, King of France. The Cardinal Dossat, writing to Louise, the Queen Dodger, told her, in his frank manner, that he had lived as much or more like a monk than a monarch, letter 23. And Pope Sextus V, speaking of that prince one day to the Cardinal de Joyeuse, protector of the affairs of France, said to him pleasantly, There is nothing that your king hath not done, and does not do so still, to be a monk, nor anything that I have not done not to be a monk. Cost and a footnote. I love temperate and moderate natures. An immoderate zeal, 
even to that which is good, even though it does not offend, astonishes me, and puts me to study what name to give it. Neither the mother of Pausanias, who was the first instructor of her son's process, and threw the first stone towards his death, nor Posthumius the dictator, who put his son to death, whom the ardor of youth had successfully pushed upon the enemy a little more advanced than the rest of his squadron, do appear to me so much just as strange, and I should neither advise nor like to follow so savage a virtue, and that costs so dear. Footnote. Montaigne would here give us to understand, upon the authority of Diodorus Siculus, that Pausanias' mother gave the first hint of the punishment that was to be inflicted on her son. Pausanias, says this historian, perceiving that the Ephori and some other Lacedaemonians aimed at apprehending him, got the start of them, and went and took sanctuary in Minerva's temple. And the Lacedaemonians, being doubtful whether they ought to take him from thence in violation of the franchise there, it is said that his own mother came herself to the temple, but spoke nothing, nor did anything more than lay a piece of brick, which she brought with her, on the threshold of the temple, which, when she had done, she returned home. The Lacedaemonians, taking the hint from the mother, caused the gate of the temple to be walled up, and by this means starved Pausanias, so that he died with hunger, etc. Book 11, Chapter 10 of Amiot's Translation The name of Pausanias' mother was Alsathea, as we are informed by Thucydides Scullius, who only said that it was reported that when they set about walling up the gates of the chapel in which Pausanias had taken refuge, his mother, Alsathea, laid the first stone. Costi and a footnote. Footnote. Opinions differ as to the truth of this fact. Livy thinks he has good authority for rejecting it because it does not appear in history that Posthumius was branded with it, as Titus Manlius was, about one hundred years after his time. For Manlius, having put his son to death for the like cause, obtained the odious name of Imperiosus, and since that time, Manliana Imperia has been used as a term to signify orders that are too severe. Manliana Imperia, says Livy, were not only horrible for the time present, but of a bad example to posterity. And this historian makes no doubt but such commands would have been actually styled Postumiana Imperia, if Posthumius had been the first who set so barbarous an example. Livy, Book 4, Chapter 29 and Book Eight, Chapter Seven. But, however, Montaigne has Valerius Maximus on his side, who says expressly that Posthumius caused his son to be put to death, and Diodorus of Sicily in Book Twelve, Chapter Nineteen. Cost. And a footnote. The archer that shoots over misses as much as he that falls short, and is equally troublesome to my sight to look up at a great light and to look down into a dark abyss. Callicles, in Plato, says that the extremity of philosophy is hurtful, and advises not to dive into it beyond the limits of profit, that, taken moderately, it is pleasant and useful, that, in the end, it renders a man brutish and vicious, 
a contemner of religion and the common laws, an enemy to civil conversation and all human pleasures, incapable of all public administration, unfit either to assist others or to relieve himself, and a fit object for all sorts of injuries and affronts. He says true, for in its excess it enslaves our natural freedom, and by an impertinent subtlety leads us out of the fair and beaten way that nature has traced for us. The love we bear to our wives is very lawful, and yet theology thinks fit to curb and restrain it. As I remember, I have read in one place of St. Thomas Aquinas, Part Secunda, Book 2, Question 154, Article 9, where he condemns marriages within any of the forbidden degrees, for this reason, amongst others, that there is some danger, lest the friendship a man bears to such a woman should be immoderate. For if the conjugal affection be full and perfect betwixt them, as it ought to be, and that it be over and above surcharged with that of kindred too, there is no doubt but such an addition will carry the husband beyond the bounds of reason. Those sciences that regulate the manners of men, divinity, and philosophy, will have their say in everything. There is no action so private and secret that can escape their inspection and jurisdiction. They are best taught, who are best able to control and curb their own liberty. Women expose their nudities, as much as you will, upon the account of pleasure, though in the necessities of physic they are altogether as shy. I will therefore, in their behalf, teach the husbands, that is, such as are too vehement in the exercise of the matrimonial duty, if such there still be, this lesson, that the very pleasures they enjoy in the society of their wives are reproachable, if immoderate, and that a licentious and riotous abuse of them is a fault as reprovable here as in illicit connections. Those immodest and debauched tricks and postures that the first ardor suggests to us in this affair are not only indecently but detrimentally practiced upon our wives. Let them at least learn impudence from another hand. They are ever ready enough for our business, and I, for my part, always went the plain way to work. Marriage is a solemn and religious tie, and therefore the pleasure we extract from it should be a sober and serious delight, and mixed with a certain kind of gravity. It should be a sort of discreet and conscientious pleasure. And seeing that the chief end of it is generation, some make a question whether when men are out of hopes, as when they are superannuated, or already with child, it be lawful to embrace our wives. Tis homicide, according to Plato, Laws 8. Certain nations, the Mohammedan amongst others, abominate all conjunction with women with child, others also with those who are in their courses. Zenobia would never admit her husband for more than one encounter, after which she left him to his own swing for the whole time of her conception, and not till after that would again receive her. Trebellius Polio, 30 Tyrants, Chapter 30 A brave and generous example of conjugal continence. It was doubtless from some lascivious poet. The lascivious poet is Homer, see his Iliad, 14, 294, 
and one that himself was in great distress for a little of this sport, that Plato borrowed this story, that Jupiter was one day so hot upon his wife, that not having so much patience as till she could get to the couch, he threw her upon the floor, where the vehemence of pleasure made him forget the great and important resolutions he had but newly taken with the rest of the gods in his celestial council, and bragged that he had had as good a bout as when he got her maidenhead, unknown to their parents. The kings of Persia were wont to invite their wives to the beginning of their festivals, but when the wine began to work in good earnest, and that they were to give the reins to pleasure, they sent them back to their private apartments, that they might not participate in their immoderate lust, sending for other women in their stead, with whom they were not obliged to so great a decorum of respect. Plutarch, Precepts of Marriage, Chapter 14 All pleasures and all sorts of gratifications are not properly and fitly conferred upon all sorts of persons. Epaminondas had committed to prison a young man for certain debauches, for whom Pelopidas mediated, that at his request he might be set at liberty, which Epaminondas denied to him, but granted it at the first word to a wench of his, that made the same intercession, saying that it was a gratification fit for such a one as she, but not for a captain. Sophocles, being joined praetor with Pericles, seeing accidentally a fine boy pass by, Oh, what a charming boy is that, said he. That might be very well, answered Pericles, for any other than a praetor, who ought not only to have his hands, but his eyes too, chaste. Cicero, De Ophichis, 140. Ilias the emperor, answered his wife, who reproached him with his love to other women, that he did it upon a conscientious account, for as much as marriage was a name of honor and dignity, not of wanton and lascivious desire. And our ecclesiastical history preserves the memory of that woman in great veneration, who parted from her husband because she would not comply with his indecent and inordinate desires. In fine, there is no pleasure so just and lawful, where intemperance and excess are not to be condemned. But, to speak the truth, is not man a most miserable creature the while? It is scarce, by his natural condition, in his power, to taste one pleasure pure and entire, and yet must he be contriving doctrines and precepts to curtail that little he has. He is not yet wretched enough, unless by art and study he augments his own misery. Fortunae miseras auximus arte vias. We artificially augment the wretchedness of fortune. Propertius, Book 3, 744. Human wisdom makes as ill use of her talent when she exercises it in resigning from the number and sweetness of those pleasures that are naturally our due, as she employs it favorably and well in artificially disguising and tricking out the ills of life to alleviate the sense of them. Had I ruled the roast, I should have taken another and more natural course, which, to say the truth, is both commodious and holy and should, peradventure, have been able to have limited it too. Notwithstanding that both our spiritual and corporal physicians, as by compact betwixt them, can find no other way to cure, 
nor other remedy for the infirmities of the body and the soul than by misery and pain. To this end, watchings, fastings, hair-shirts, remote and solitary banishments, perpetual imprisonments, whips, and other afflictions have been introduced amongst men, but so that they should carry a sting with them, and be real afflictions indeed, and not fall out as it once did to one Gallio, who having been sent an exile into the isle of Lesbos, news was not long after brought to Rome, that he there lived as merry as the day was long, and that what had been enjoined him for a penance turned to his pleasure and satisfaction, whereupon the senate thought fit to recall him home to his wife and family, and confine him to his own house, to accommodate their punishment to his feeling and apprehension. For to him, whom fasting would make more healthful and more sprightly, and to him, to whose palate fish were more acceptable than flesh, the prescription of these would have no curative effect, no more than in the other sort of physic, where drugs have no effect upon him who swallows them with appetite and pleasure. The bitterness of the potion and the abhorrence of the patient are necessary circumstances to the operation. The nature that would eat rhubarb like buttered turnips would frustrate the use and virtue of it. It must be something to trouble and disturb the stomach that must purge and cure it. And here the common rule that things are cured by their contraries fail, for in this one ill is cured by another. This belief a little resembles that other so ancient one of thinking to gratify the gods and nature by massacre and murder, an opinion universally once received in all religions. And still, in these later times wherein our fathers lived, Amurath at the taking of the Isthmus immolated six hundred young Greeks to his father's soul, in the nature of a propitiatory sacrifice for his sins and in those new countries discovered in this age of ours, which are pure and virgin yet, in comparison of ours, this practice is in some measure everywhere received. All their idols reek with human blood, not without various examples of horrid cruelty. Some they burn alive, and take, half-broiled, off the coals, to tear out their hearts and entrails. Some, even women, they flay alive, and with their bloody skins clothe and disguise others. Neither are we without great examples of constancy and resolution in this affair, the poor souls that are to be sacrificed, old men, women, and children, themselves going about some days before to beg alms for the offering of their sacrifice, presenting themselves to the slaughter, singing and dancing with the spectators. The ambassadors of the king of Mexico setting out to Fernando Cortes the power and greatness of their master, after having told him that he had thirty vassals, of whom each was able to raise an hundred thousand fighting men, and that he kept his court in the fairest and best fortified city under the sun, added at last that he was obliged yearly to offer to the gods fifty thousand men, and it is affirmed that he maintained a continual war with some potent neighboring nations, not only to keep the young men in exercise, but principally to have wherewithal to furnish his sacrifices with his prisoners of war. At a certain town in another place, for the welcome of the said Cortes, they sacrificed fifty men at once. 
I will tell you this one tale more, and I have done. Some of these people, being beaten by him, sent to acknowledge him, and to treat with him of a peace whose messengers carried him three sorts of gifts which they presented in these terms. Behold, Lord, here are five slaves. If thou art a furious god that feedeth upon flesh and blood, eat these, and we will bring thee more. If thou art an affable god, behold here incense and feathers. But if thou art a man, take these fowls and these fruits that we have brought thee. End of section 29